Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. And I know that this is a podcast and you can only hear me. But if you were to see me, especially at Mass on a given Sunday, if you were to catch a glance at my socks when I genuflected, you would notice that they are fun socks. If I am not wearing Packer game day socks, you can bet that I am wearing socks from Socks Religious. Socks Religious brings you socks with saints on them. I own St. John Paul II, St. Joseph that I like wearing on Wednesdays, St. Patrick I like wearing during ordinary time. I have the rosary socks. I like wearing those on Marian feast days. St. Nicholas wore that one for the Feast of St. Nick on December 6th. I love Socks Religious. They are the perfect gift for me, and they can be the perfect gift for someone in your life. I encourage you to find the link to Socks Religious in the show notes today and buy a pair of socks for yourself, for your family, or for your friends. And now, on with today's show. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. And before we get to today's interview, I just want to give a little update about kind of where the podcast is going, especially in 2021, as this year kind of dies down and we look to begin a new year. You may have noticed that there have been two episodes each week, for the most part, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And that's been good. I've enjoyed doing it, but I think that I'm going to take a step back and go back to the original strategy of doing one podcast interview episode a week. And I'm going to change it and we're going to call it Merry Mondays. We're going to drop the podcast episode each Monday now. That way you have an entire week kind of uh, as you go about your daily work and business to maybe catch the episode. Uh, I was talking to a podcast expert who said Thursday is like the worst day that you could release an episode because they only have one more day left in the week. So we're going to do Mondays now, Merry Mondays, uh, with one episode each week. And maybe there'll be the occasional uh, additional interview episode as well. So that's kind of the housekeeping. Uh, Looking forward to 2021. There's some great guests that I've already recorded with, including uh, right before the new year, Meg Hunter-Kilmer. And then the following week, I interviewed Scott Williams of Sock Religious. So be sure if you love religious socks, you can get some religious socks from Sock Religious. So, but now let's move on as we're here in this last week. We've just celebrated the fourth Sunday of Advent. It is now a few more days until the dawning of salvation, until the day of Christmas. And you might remember Dr. Luke Arandando. He is with the St. Philip Institute down in the Diocese of Tyler in Texas. And he spoke with us back in October, feast day of Our Lady of Fatima, October 13th, about the Oh My Jesus prayer and kind of the richness. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was very rich theologically. And I hope that everybody that listened to that episode uh, got something from it. And During that episode, he mentioned a book that he reads every Advent called The Dawn of the Messiah, The Coming of Christ in Scripture by Dr. Edward Sri. And so today, I thought as we are almost at the heels of Christmas, as really that dawning of the Messiah day is near, 
It would be great to unpack this book that Dr. Arredondo reads every Advent. And so uh, for him to share why it is his favorite book and some of the main insights that he's taken away from it over the many years. He remarked once to me that he had given so many copies of the book away that he only has a few left now, uh, but he always ha- has a large number of them because he loves sharing it. The book is by Dr. Edward Sri, like I said, and he's a phenomenal teacher, a phenomenal uh, writer and theologian. And so uh, if you can't have Dr. Edward Sri talk about this book, why not Dr. Luke? So welcome to How They Love Mary once again. Wow. Thank you uh, for that introduction, Father. That's uh, very, very kind. Hi. It's going to be hard to live up to that, but I'll do my best. (laughs) I'm sure that you will. You will, because I walked away from our last conversation just in awe, you know, kind of thinking about all of the Fatima mystery as we kind of talked about through the lens of that prayer. And so today, let's talk about the mystery of Christmas through the lens of Scripture, but especially the Old Testament. So the dawn of the Messiah, the coming of Christ in Scripture, you know, the first thing we have to say, and uh, he hints at it a little bit, but... He begins the a new era dawning, the Annunciation to Zechariah. And so this kind of begins the shift. This is the shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. John the Baptist is often called kind of the last of the prophets in a sense, and that he's right. that segue into what is new. He is the precursor, and we've heard about John the Baptist during the Advent season. And so the Annunciation to Zechariah, that's a very significant event then because something new is going to be ushered in. And this is the beginning of it as we see it in the sacred scriptures. Absolutely. Yeah, John the Baptist is sort of that bridge for us between the Old Testament and the New Testament and that he's uh, presented very much in the... You pick up in Luke's Gospel right from the very beginning how how he's writing in parallel. So if you, if you just put the, the story of, you know, the birth of John the Baptist or the Annunciation, rather, of Zechariah side by side with the Annunciation to Mary, um, you see that their lives are tangled up together. Even from the, the way their births are announced, John the Baptist is linked to the Messiah. There, there's a similar pattern uh, with an angel appearing, you know, um, and proclaiming tremendously good news, unexpected news in both cases, right? Zechariah is, uh, his wife is, is old. They have not had any children. And, and even just where Zechariah is, you know, he's going to get to go offer incense in, in front of the holy place, uh, in front, uh, just just outside of the Holy of Holies, which is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest of the Old Testament. Uh, the priests in the Old Testament that served in the temple served two weeks at a time, and when they got to the, the temple each year for each week, uh, so they, they would serve one week and then go home and then later in the year serve another week, and they would draw um, or cast lots or in some sort of way randomly determine what your actual role was going to be. And for Zechariah to be able to offer the incense in front of the Holy of Holies was, I mean, nobody gets closer to the dwelling of God on earth except for the high priest once a year. Um, so it was really a tremendous thing. And then what happens in there is, what's the honor? It's not that you get to offer incense. It's that, hey, an angel is announcing that you are going to have a child at this late part in your life. And, of course, that turns out to be a very important child. And the most interesting thing about the Annunciation to Zechariah 
is the fact that he is struck dumb. He is mute because he kind of doesn't understand the mystery. He asks questions. And so for nine months then, there he is just contemplating, trying to make sense of everything. Like, what is God doing in my life and the wife of Elizabeth? Why did God choose us now at this moment to have a child? And so really he had to begin to ponder all of these different things. Just as Mary pondered all these things in her heart, Zechariah has to do it. And and that's one of the things Dr. Sri brings out is that this is the sense of waiting for something. So John the Baptist, he's waiting for John. Zechariah is for, for Mary. She is waiting. She's waiting with all of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Yeah. And so now when she receives her annunciation, well, now that waiting is over. She hears and she says yes. And so that's a very significant event as well. Yeah, Fulton Sheen talks about the uh, the importance of, of the, the fiats in, in salvation history. Um, fiat lux as uh, one of the, you know, let there be light, and then fiat miki secundum voluntum tua, like, let it be done unto me according to thy word, Mary's response at the Annunciation. Um, and one of the fascinating things to me about this book, that, that it does such a great job, um, that I just want to talk about like in, in a little bit wider angle, sort of zooming out, is the unity between the Old and the New Testament. Um, I was fortunate enough to study scripture with Brant Petrie at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans um, for several years because I was taking one class a semester uh, until I finished my degree. And so it, it allowed me to be with Brant Petrie in the classroom for like six years, which is just really a blessing to me. And one of the things that he stressed so much in his teaching is the unity between the Old and the New Testament, and it's really something that, you know, is, is a standard part of, of Catholic teaching, and, and you see it in the Catechism, um, paragraphs 128 through 130, uh, but the idea is that the Old Testament um, is unveiled in the New, and the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and I think this book does a really tremendous job of showing that. You understand the Annunciation story, or any of the, any of the details that are going on in the birth of Christ, much, much more when you have a basic familiarity with the Old Testament. Not all of us have that. I certainly am not an expert, but what Dr. Sri does in this book is he just brings those to the surface. So he brings out those illusions, those hints, and, and shows us how these things connect. So it is something new, but it's also something old, and, it's, and there's something really profound about that. And that's one of the things that we as Catholics that I think for the common Catholic who is interested in their faith and they want to go a little deeper, they want to know the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think so often we just say, well, read the New Testament and when you get around to it, read the Old Testament. But here we're confronting <laughs> yeah. that and we're saying, no, no, you need to read the New Testament with eyes of the Old Testament and see how the right. old is fulfilled in the new. And that's that's a great gift. And you know, what a blessing for you to be able to work with Dr. Bram Petrie for over six years, as you mentioned. And that's an interesting thing, too, I've noticed, because like Dr. Edward Sri, for example, the author of this book, he has formed different scholars. He has formed different individuals over the years. And when you encounter their writings and their thoughts, like I was reading a book yeah. one day and I said to myself, this person has to be a student of Dr. Edward Sri. And sure enough, <laughs> he was. He was a, a yep. student. And so, so if someone encounters you now, and as you're talking, and as maybe they read things that you've written, they'll say, 
This has like a Dr. Brand Petrie flavor to it. And that's because you've been formed by him. You've been formed in that school and in that thought. And that's a very beautiful gift uh, that you've been able to receive. And now you're able to share in so many different ways. Yeah, I really hope so. That would be a, wow, what a, what a compliment that would be if somebody ever thinks that about my writing. Because <laughs> he is a great teacher, but he's also a great writer. Um, yeah, so, you know, in the uh, as we're leading up to Advent, or, or to Christmas, Christmas, rather, um, and we, we, especially in those the, the readings of the Christmas Mass, and there are different you know readings depending on what liturgy you go to or what year it is. But uh, if, for instance, the genealogy account right in Matthew, which lists all of the 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 sons, the son of this person, the son of this person, it starts with Adam and it and it goes all the way to Jesus. Uh, I, that's one of those classic times I think when most people who are reading the Bible, especially if, like you said, someone says, "Well, yeah, Old Testament's tricky. Why don't you start with the uh, New Testament?" And you, you open up the New Testament, you get to Matthew, and it's the uh, the, the genealogy. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? Well, one of the things that's going on there is the Davidic lineage of Jesus Christ is deliberately being highlighted by Matthew, for instance, grouping things in fourteens generations of 14s and in the language that he's writing in that that number 14 is it really essentially means david it's sort of like a code and so in the background of the genealogy what what an, a really informed you know reader of the original text would be hearing is david 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 echoing over and over but yeah i mean that's lost on us in english and somebody has to explain to you how it works but when you have some idea that look this is what's going on there so many things begin to pop up, you know, and, and, the, the, and this works. Studying the Gospels, reading the life of Jesus Christ, it, throughout his entire life, these kinds of things are evident. It's probably just most profound and most obvious, uh, you know, at, at his birth, um, how, how, how deep the connections and ties are to the Old Testament. It's one of the things that makes Christmas such a great liturgical feast. If you've done just a little bit of reading of scripture, a little bit of work, you know, it's not always going to jump off the page at you, but this book does a great job of helping us see some of these things. You've just brought up the genealogy of Jesus, and that's one of the chapters in the book, and he titles it The Return of the King, just as you brought that out, that that King David, so the return of a new king, and we see that with the Magi, don't we, that the Magi come and they go to Herod and they say, we've seen a star and we know that there's a newborn king. And where is yeah. this newborn king? And then, you know, he has a whole chapter. It's the very last one on Herod and the, the holy innocents and the slaughter of them and the magi, etc. Yes. But that's that's a reality that they see, that they they know that there's this new king. And so everything in the old or in the New Testament now is being counter is pointing to that. The genealogy, as he brings out the return of a king. Well, Jesus is coming. Um, and yeah. so we have the Magi as well. What do we make of the Magi seeing that star and going uh, to the uh, going to Herod and saying, "Where is the newborn king?" You know, I guess. Yeah. Any thoughts, reflections on that? Well, I, you know, Pope Benedict in his uh, Jesus of Nazareth volume three, it's the third volume that he wrote, but it actually deals with the infancy narratives. So it's kind of weird, you know, volume one and two, he's going through the entire life of Jesus. And volume three, he goes back to the beginning of Jesus' life. He says it's the antechamber to the other volumes is the way he described it. But in, in his discussion of the Magi in that book, um, he points out that, you know, one of the things that's important about it is it shows people beyond the covenant family of Israel seeking the truth 
wherever it may be found. And even if it is found within, you know, the this lineage of, of Israel, they're willing to follow it. Um, what's what I think is is fascinating about the story is that they have faith that some of the Israelites don't have. Um, Dr. Sri says here in, in, in the book here, the, the, uh, the Annunciation to the Shepherds, which is another group, right, um, that are also sort of kind of on the outskirts of things, they immediately, you know, begin to proclaim the, the birth of the Messiah. So they're sort of the first evangelists, and they're not even, they weren't even there when it happened. Um, so one of the things that's happening in the Gospels is we're seeing, even right from the beginning, the way the births are announced, the, the people that become interested in following Christ, and they want to know where he is, and they seek him out, some of them are not from within the covenant family. And that's because Christ's new covenant is going to expand to be universal. It's going to be beyond what Israel was able to accomplish, even though, as you see in the Old Testament, there is an imagination that my house shall become a house of worship for all nations. Jesus Christ really makes this possible. And you can see this even in these enunciations to magi who are just sort of, you know, scientists or wise people or however we may describe them. There's, there's a lot of different interpretations of how to translate the word that we say is, you know, magi um, or the shepherds who are, you know, again, simple people. And who, who was another shepherd, another uh, simple person in, in salvation history is David. And so, we, we, you know, there's all of these layers just richly tied together. And it's, it's almost difficult to pull one of them. It's like playing pickup sticks. Uh, you, you can't move one without all of them kind of shaking. You have the shepherd king and David, and then you have Jesus who says, I am the good shepherd. You have Jesus who on the cross is the king of the Jews, but he's really the king of the universe, especially as yeah. we celebrate liturgically. And we do have kind of the, the marriage then of these symbols that we see in the Old Testament. And again, we go back, we hear that name David once again, that genealogy, as you mentioned, and now, um, the, now here again. Uh, the fact that Jesus is connected in so many different ways to King David. But, and wasn't King David from Bethlehem? Isn't that the case? Yeah. And so yeah. you even have that connection that Jesus, who should have been born in Nazareth, now is being taken to Bethlehem so that he could be born in the city of David. Yes. And David, it seems, is the key yeah, I to love, understanding sorry, Christmas. Yeah, I, I love what Dr. Sri says about the, the whole birth in Bethlehem, that um, on one level, when you read the gospel, it appears that it's Caesar who is moving the wheels of the story, because he's got the census happening. Because of the census, you have to report to your family's home. So it's, it's Caesar, the powerful person who controls everything, that has caused Jesus' family to go to the town of Bethlehem when it becomes time for the birth. But what Edward Street points out, what Dr. Street points out is, see, that's not really what's happening. The Lord controls this story. The Lord knows that it is out of Bethlehem that a Savior will be born, as we see in Micah. Um, and he draws through the secondary causality of the princes and powers of, of the world at the time. He allows his story to unfold, right? With, with, the, with real free will of Caesar to, to call the census, what, what's happening is, Caesar is fulfilling the divine plan, unbeknownst to him. Um, and and uh, this is one of the things that I, that I just love about it. Bishop Barron, in, in and in I think it's in the Catholicism book, uh, but in, in some of his writing, 
talks about the the way that Caesar is would have been called Lord or Kyrios. Oh yeah. Um, but Jesus at his birth is referred to by the angels, um, you know, as as the Lord. The, the Christ the Lord has been born in Bethlehem. That that title of Lord, which we think of as you know in the twenty first century as well, that's a that's a religious title, was was a very much political term um, in the Roman Empire and had a certain sense of like sacrality to it. You can't call someone else Lord. That's Caesar is Lord. But here in, in the Gospel of Luke, you see this baby in a manger where animals eat. That's the Lord, and it just it upends everything. Yeah, one of the things I preached on in the very early days of Advent at one of the daily masses was really the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Advent season. So that's kind of what you just said, was that this is the divine plan. We might look at it and see that it's Caesar putting everything in motion, but no, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit conceives Jesus in the womb, and now the Holy yeah. Spirit kind of conjures up in the mind of, of Caesar that he should call for a census. And so it is really God who is the author of all things. It is the Holy Spirit bringing this about so that Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, might fulfill all of these prophets. And we have the prophetic utterances. And so how did they make those utterances? Well, they were inspired by the Spirit. They were inspired by God to make these yeah. statements. And so it's there's so much at play, and only God can make all of this happen, is I think one of the big takeaways from the Old and the New Testament, seeing the new, the Old being fulfilled in the New. Yeah. One of the things uh, I think I'd like to share my sort of my favorite part of the book that, I mean, the whole, the whole book is fantastic, but every time that I reread it, um, which I try to do each Advent is, and also it, it actually the, the book extends beyond the birth of Christ. So if you wanted to take this and, and read it through the Christmas season, it goes into the the, the mysteries of Christ's early life too, the presentation at the temple. Um, but anyways, in in the story of Elizabeth's visit of the the visitation to Elizabeth by Mary, um, he he recounts or she recounts how that story parallels. Uh, the story of the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Second Kings, I think. And it's a it's an obscure story in, in terms of the Old Testament. If you know if you're reading the Old Testament through, there's a lot of stuff going on. I don't know that you're gonna remember the the Ark of the Covenant being moved to the house of Obed Edom for three months and David at some point leaping in front of the Ark and part of this liturgical uh, you know celebration of the of moving of the Ark. But what Dr. Sree shows very convincingly is the author of the Gospel of Luke, Luke himself he knows that story very well, and he portrays the birth of Jesus, the Annunciation, the visit to Elizabeth, paralleling this movement of the Ark in a way that lets us call Mary the Ark, the new Ark of the Covenant, right? So in, in, in so many litanies of Mary, we call her the new Ark of the Covenant, and I think it would be really easy to go, what? New Ark of the Covenant? Like, like what is that? Uh, Dr. Sree does a really great job here of, of highlighting you know, the, the original Ark uh, this is on page 44 of the book. The original Ark housed three things. The manna, the stone tablets, the remains of the stone tablets of, of the, uh, the, with the commandments, and the staff of Aaron, the first high priest. And then he, he outlines these connections to the second book of Samuel. Sorry, it's not 2 Kings. 2 Samuel, the, the movement of the Ark. And what he shows you is that really what Luke is portraying is that Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. And th then that, what does that mean that she holds within herself? Well, 
she holds within herself the actual Eucharist, which the manna is only a symbol of. She holds in her heart, in her, in her, in her womb, in her ark, right, the source of the Ten Commandments, not merely the stones that they're written on, and the true high priest of Israel. These, so, so it's a, it's a beautiful uh, and really powerful demonstration of this principle of you know the unity of the New and the Old Testament, um, and. Those first two chapters of Luke's gospel, and it's not to say that this doesn't happen in Matthew as well, but those first two chapters of Luke's gospel are just drenched and dripping with all of these connections to the Old Testament, which Dr. Sri does such a great job of bringing out. And that's why I love going back to this book year after year. There was breaking news on December 8th, and the breaking news December 8th, 2020 was Pope Francis declares Year of St. Joseph. So we often talk about the Blessed Mother, especially because she says, yes, we have her Annunciation. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. She's really kind of one of the main figures behind the Christmas mystery, but not in the shadows, but really at the forefront too. Look at your nativity sets. Look at the story of Christmas is St. Joseph, who of course we know doesn't say anything in the sacred scriptures, but yet there he is leading her to Bethlehem. There he is knocking on the doors of these people. Let me come in. Let, let my wife give birth to a son here. And so St. Joseph prominently featured in this uh, book as well. And it's the year of St. Joseph. And I think there are people out there who want to um, know more about St. Joseph. And there are excellent resources out there, uh, like Don, Father Donald Calloway's book, uh, yeah. Consecration yeah. of St. Joseph. I know Mike Aquilina just came out with a book on St. Joseph. Mike Aquilina was a guest just a few weeks ago on How They Love Me. Yeah. But uh, Well, Don great timing for Mike's book, by the way. I, yeah. I'm sure he's really appreciating that. <laughs> I know, right? Like, there's no way that he knew. He just wanted to write a book no. about St. Joseph. And now, yeah, yeah that's great. I <laughs> I couldn't. Great providence. I couldn't but laugh, like you had, at you yeah. know, kind of the the architect of the divine plan there at work. But uh, Doctor Sri has a chapter here, Silent Night, and that's a song we sing it. Silent Night, Holy Night, we use it, and Silent Night, that night that Christ was born in Bethlehem. But here, uh, Dr. Sri does a nice play, Silent Night, K-N-I-G-H-T. So St. Joseph as the yeah. night of Our Lady, Holy Night, that he was holy, that he was sanctified, that he was uh, set apart for a particular mission, that he was seeking God in all things. So uh, there is this this chapter here that really allows us to go into the depths of, of St. Joseph and his role. Yeah. And again, talk about Old Testament and New Testament. There's the old Joseph and there's yes. the new Joseph, the Joseph of the Old Testament, the Joseph now here of the New Testament. Just as we have Eve and Mary as the new Eve, well, now we have the old Joseph and the new Joseph. What do we make of that? Yeah, yeah I, I, I love this uh, the, this. This connection with the old Joseph, um, you know, you have in the old, in the book of Genesis, Joseph, um, who, among many other things, is an excellent administrator, who is able to read dreams, who knows who knows what dreams truly mean, and who can foresee disaster and avert them by prudent response to that, right? So he, he sees the famine coming, the feasts and the famine, and he prepares for that. Uh, and, and what we have in, in Joseph in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, which, which many scholars think is written for a Jewish audience is really highlighting this this figure that all the Jews would know so well from the book of Genesis um, is you know uh, Joseph being portrayed 
um, in, in a way that fulfills some of those roles, you know. Uh, he's, he's administrator of the Holy Family. He is interpreter of dreams given to him par excellence. And also to see, you know, because of his, his faith and because of his interpretation of dreams, like he knows how to respond to the, the terror that is coming from Herod. And he takes his family and they, they, they go um, in the flight to Egypt. And one of the great things about the flight to Egypt that I think a lot of people probably miss is when the Holy Family has to escape to Egypt, what that allows later is for them to return from Egypt, to come out of Egypt, right? And this is what happens to the people of Israel, to God's people in the Old Testament. They're in slavery in Egypt, and then they come out of Egypt. So as the people of God had an exodus in the Old Testament, the Holy Family and Jesus himself gets to do a new exodus, Right, and the New Exodus is one of the one of the powerful themes of the Gospels, you writ large. But you you already see this sort of in micro uh, in a microcosm when, as an infant, Jesus is, in certain sense, you know, in danger in Egypt. Now he's he's maybe in less danger hiding out in Egypt than he would have been staying in Bethlehem, and Joseph knows that. But they're there because they're in danger, and when. Joseph receives a dream and knows that it is safe, then they come out of there. So there's there's an exodus that happens for Jesus, just as it happens in the Old Testament. Wow. And then, you know, so they flee into Egypt and, you know, kind of the timeline and everything, um, trying to piece it together. People try to do that. Like, how, how long after was that? Or even I read one time a scholarly piece, for example, on the word in in the New Testament, in the Gospel of St. Luke, where we're like where the family was. And this one scholar was trying to do this interpretation that maybe it was a part of someone's home, that it was the lower part of their home. It was part of the family because Joseph is going there. You know, so how long do they stay there? These are questions we have. We have lots of questions about the Christmas mystery. Okay, so did they stay there until they go to Jerusalem 40 days after to present Jesus in the temple? Then how yeah. long after the presentation in the temple does it take for them to flee into Egypt? Is it one year? Is it two years? Is it right away? You know, these are right. questions. Did the Magi come right away? How about the shepherds? Um, I think in our mind, as we think of the Christmas story, we like to think of everything happening all at once, right? <laughs> yeah, so like the, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. So here come the shepherds. Here come the Magi. Right. Here yeah, come he's everybody. Just been born. Yeah. But, but it probably didn't happen like that. It was probably spaced right. out in time and, and all of this was taking place. Yeah. Yeah. I like to imagine, you know, when I think about it, that, you know, I mean, when Christ was born that night, that, that there was some time for solitude and silence for just the Holy Family to sort of contemplate what they're going through. But um, yeah, there is a real sense in which we, we don't know precisely how these events worked out. What we do know and can know with pretty great certainty is that they are real events in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, and this is an entirely different topic, maybe for another another podcast, but you know, in terms of the reliability of the Gospels themselves as, as biographies, uh, this is something that, that Dr. Petrie is a very big proponent of, um, so that, that we know that these events happen, that they accurately portray the, the, the important things in Christ's sure. life, but the precise timeline is sort of yeah, you know, not that it that nobody cared at all, but they they didn't have the concern to give us a date and time for everything in the ancient world in the way that we kind of expected to now. You know, we we're used to that now, but 
that hasn't always been how biographies have been told. So I often remind people that, you know, the scriptures, why do we read the scriptures or what are, what is the purpose of the scriptures? Well, as you just said, like when we hear the names of certain people, well, it does tell a history. It tells us the history of the Jewish people, as you mentioned earlier, how they were enslaved in Egypt. So it's telling us their story. It's telling us in the genealogy of Jesus, it mentions the Babylonian exile. And so it tells us the story. So we can actually situate the stories of the gospel within yeah. a historical context because it gives us the names of people. And we can say, this is real. This really took place. And what we are receiving is not just yes. a fairy tale, but it's something that is true and it's believable and people have been right. believing it for centuries upon centuries, millennia upon millennia. In my uh, in my family, every uh, Christmas Eve, we have this tradition of, you know, we used to see each other when, when, when we were all younger and lived at home and now we're kind of living in separate places, my siblings and my parents. But so now we text each other um, every Christmas Eve and we ask, hey, who was the governor of Syria? Uh, when Jesus was born, does anybody know? And it's because it's in the gospel reading. The you know uh, when when Quirinius was governor of Syria, um, and it's just this, <laughs> this joke in our family because our Irish priest would say it with such a strong accent, and it's just like branded in our in our brains. But that Quirinius is a real person, right? We we can look up well, you know, when 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 he was the governor of Syria. This is one of the one of the things that makes the gospels not a fairy tale. We sometimes like to think that the birth of Jesus ushers us out of year zero or, you know, one a into one right. AD. But, but lots of scholars put the birth of Jesus at like one or two BC. Isn't that right? Yeah, there's, there's certainly debates about uh, exactly how, how accurate our, our, our calendar years are. You know, if it's, if uh, we're, we're basing everything on the, on the birth of Christ, um, yeah, there's some there's some difficulty there, and that's a question I'm not. I, I <laughs> I'm not terribly concerned about that question. Some people really are, but sure. I, you know. And you know another question people are terribly concerned with was Christmas Day, December twenty fifth of the year zero or year one or two BC. Right. That's another question that people. Um, and we can talk about the questions of Christmas, and Dr. Sri does a great job answering lots of these questions, especially with the Old Testament and reflecting on it. But here's another question. So the Magi come. They bring gold, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I've read some legends and traditions that say, well, that was to help the Holy Family when they fled into Egypt, that they sold the gold and they were able to provide for their livelihood. And then, of course, we have the fact that it's symbolic, that the frankincense or the myrrh would right. be, you know, kind of the foreshadowing, the foretelling of the death of Jesus and or how he death, would be anointed yeah. in the tomb. So yeah. there's all of these questions, right. all of these symbols. The very fact that Bethlehem is named House of Bread, Jesus is born in a manger, which yeah. feeds animals. That's right. So Jesus, who is the bread of life, who we feed upon, becomes food for the whole world. So there is so much much in this Christmas mystery that we can unlock. And Dr. Sri in the Dawn of the Messiah helps us to do that, I think. He really breaks it open. We see Christmas with new yeah. eyes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I, I love the book. Now, maybe just one last thing before before we go. Sure. Um, 
as we think about Christmas and have it coming up and maybe in our own prayer, we're praying in a very particular way. And, you know, this was the advent of all advents, that if there was an advent that we could have embraced wholeheartedly, this was it. And I hate to admit it, I feel like I failed at Advent a little bit. No. Um, I'm trying to redeem yeah. it in the last nine days. I'm doing this nine-day novena to Our Lady of La Leche. I'm praying for couples striving to conceive or oh, wanting great. to adopt. I'm doing it on social media. So so that's a way in which I've tried to redeem my Advent to make it intentionally prayerful. You know, As I redeem my Advent and look at things, what is it that I want to meditate on in these last four days before Christmas Eve? What's what's something that as you are in these last days of Christmas that kind of you'll meditate on, that you'll dwell on um, yeah. leading uh, up to the birth? Something for me that, that comes back to, to me each year is just the profound humility of, of Christ to, to, to be born. To be born as a human being, there's some, you know, I mean, Christ has all the power he wants to do anything to, 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 to work salvation in, in whatever way he wanted to, whatever way God wanted to work things. It could have been different. Um, I, I, I go back to a line from Fulton Sheen in his Life of Christ, which is a book I really do want to reread. I've only read it all the way through once, and then I've started it many other times, and I get various links into it. But he has this line when he's talking about the birth of the Messiah. That he, it's, it's a refrain that he repeats several times within the span of a few pages, that divinity is always where you least expect to find it. And he just, he, he goes through this, this beautiful meditation on, on the fact that Christ is born not in Rome, not in Athens, not in some, you know, big imperial city of the Roman Empire, but in a little outpost of Bethlehem. Divinity is where you least expect to find it. He's born not only in Bethlehem, but not in an inn, in a in a manger in a you know maybe a cave or something i mean something pu- certainly not dignified for human beings divinity is where you least expect to find it uh and then where is he placed upon the bird he's placed in the the hay trough basically where, where the animals would would eat from well divinity is where you least expect to find it and he just he keeps coming back to that theme and so this is this is something that i try and keep in my prayers as we get closer to christmas that you know, divinity is still where you least expect to find it. I mean, you know, unborn children you, that don't look like divinity, but they're but they're made in the divine image and likeness of God. You know, the, the, the poor, um, those those who are the outcasts. Pope Francis always talks about you know people on the margins of society. That I mean, that's in in large in large respects, that's where we would least expect to find divinity, but that's where we should be looking. So that's that's something I try and keep in mind. I really like that phrase. Divinity is where you least expect it, and. The fact is, is we sing during Advent, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, O come, God with us. And that's the reminder always that God is with us, that where we are, that there God is. So God is with us in every moment of our life. He's not abandoned us. And and so maybe we ask, well, here I am at this point in my life. I'm at this location. Where is God here for me in that moment? So it's not just a Christmas thing, but divinity is where you least expect it. Well, where's the divine right now in the mundaneness of what I'm experiencing? So so that's something we can definitely think about for Christmas. It's something that we can definitely think about uh, really every day of our lives as we do an examine of of consciousness. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's the reality of the incarnation, right? It wasn't a one-day affair, but it's something that, changed everything yeah for me and it still does 
for me, the f- what I kind of dwell on a lot, and I, I especially have been particularly trying to pray the, the St. Andrew Novena prayer, you know, and uh, I actually downloaded, uh, somebody from Twitter put out a, a, a background, so I had it on the image on my phone. So every time I would look to say, oh, what time is it? Oh, there's the prayer. Hail and blessed be the hour and moment which the Son of God was born, uh, you know, at midnight in Pearson Cold. So it actually drew me to think about that. Well, hail and mm, blessed be yeah. that moment when Jesus came forth from the womb. But there's another another phrase that always has stuck with me, and it's from Stainless the Maiden. It's a, the Polish hymn, and uh, the English translation is not a translation of the Polish. It's just like the English putting words to it, but it's like, Nine months she waited, bearing Christ our brother. Think of what gladness when at last she saw him. And so that's something I return to again and again and again. Think of that gladness when Mary finally saw that she had nine months that she waited to see Jesus. She waited all of her life as a a Jewish woman to see the Messiah. Now the Messiah comes through her. So think of the gladness and Mary is glad she's happy she's joyful and uh, how can I try to have that joy and that happiness in my own life too that's for me that's my always going into Christmas meditation for sure excellent well great well I am so happy that we had a chance to discuss dawn of the Messiah the coming of Christ and scripture you know it's probably late for people to pick it up now and read it um, but maybe not. Maybe it's something, you know, there are 12 days of Christmas. And, uh, you know, this yep. this book has 10 chapters. So if you started yep. on the 26th, <laughs> you will finish before uh, before the Feast of the Epiphany, before the Three Kings Day. And, and you will truly unpack the mystery of Christmas from the Old to the New Testament. Dr. Edward Sree's book, Dawn of the Messiah. It's one that Dr. Luke Arandondo reads all the time, every year during the season of <laughs> Advent. And we talked about it with him today. So um, tell me tell me more where people can find you, like with the St. Philip Institute. Sure. Yes. So I am the director of faith formation for the St. Philip Institute. It's Bishop Strickland's uh, teaching institute in the Diocese of Tyler. And our website is stphilipinstitute.org, Philip. 1linstitute.org, and you can find us there. We've also got a podcast on YouTube, uh, Spotify, all the other places, uh, same thing. Just look for St. Philip Institute, and uh, that's the best way to keep up with me. That's great. I've listened to a few of the things uh, that St. Philip's puts out, and I see uh, some of the things that, you know, Bishop Strickland saying mass. So I'm a, I'm a follower of you guys on social media, and I think you're putting out great content. And uh, hopefully, you know, one day we'll be among the ranks of uh, the Augustine Institute or Ascension yeah. Press. Or, we can all hope. Yeah, right? yeah. So, but you're doing it for the good people of Tyler and forming the disciples down there. So that's great work, too. Thank you. Well, very good. Well, thank you for your time today as we discussed uh, the dawn of the Messiah, and soon that dawn will break upon us on Christmas morning when Christ comes forth from the virgin's womb. You've been listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to support the podcast, I'd encourage you to do so by becoming a member at Patreon. By supporting this podcast on Patreon, you will help to pay for the monthly fees associated with the podcast and the possibility of upgrading equipment and also putting money into advertising and promotion. 
If you like this podcast, I'd encourage you to share it with your family and friends. And please like it and review it on Apple Podcasts. Post about this podcast on your social media. And when you're on your social media, you can follow me, Father Edward Looney, at the handle at FR Edward Looney on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I can't wait to share another episode of How They Love Mary with you next time. So be sure to tune in then. Until then, let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.